When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to another political party replay edition from the past. This is from April 2019 with Home Secretary Suella Braverman, but this is way before she was Home Secretary. Um, and uh, we talk about the ERG, which obviously she's been deeply involved in. Um, this is, I mean, we obviously had a general election at the end of 2019. This is eight months before that. And and, and this feels like, <laughs> again, it, it, so much happened just in that year, let alone since, that this this feels like, I keep saying Every episode, it feels like it was a completely different era. But the reason I'm saying that is it's so odd, given how recently this was. Um, but Suella Braverman, I remember thinking this on the night, very different to how you'd imagine. And obviously she has a, um, a political persona, which all politicians have. She dispatches her political duties in a particular way. But her personal side, um, which um, often when you're Home Secretary, you're holding a big office of state like that, or just some politicians don't like to show that at all. She does show here. So I think you'll be surprised at uh, Suella Braverman's personality uh, when you listen uh, to this interview. And it's just another fascinating example of how when you give people time and space and you're genuinely interested in them and you've got an audience there who really want to hear what someone's got to say, people do relax and people are themselves. And, And that's one of the things that I love about doing this show is instead of... They are politicians, but first and foremost, they're people. And I'm really interested in them, in them as people. Obviously, I'm interested in the politics as well, and that forms the, 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 the whole point of the show, really. But also, really the whole point of the show is, I'm now going to immediately contradict myself, the fact that people who go into it are very interesting, and they're often very different to how they appear in public. And I think this um, this interview is a really good example of that. So enjoy. So well, Braverman. Oh, well, thank you very much. Welcome back. Thank you very much, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Tonight's guest is someone that I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Yeah. Someone I'm a great admirer of. And I think it's very important. There's a lot of talk of echo chambers uh, at the moment. And um, 
I always deliberately try and follow people on Twitter that I disagree with, uh, which is most people on left and right these days, so it's quite easy. There's a lot of it out there, so it's quite easy to find. And I also think this show was set up nearly seven, maybe over seven years ago now, to engage with people on every part of the political spectrum and at every stage in their careers, which is why I'm so excited uh, about tonight's guest. We've had members of the European Research Group before, of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, and Tim Lawton. And uh, tonight we have uh, someone who until recently was chair of the European Research Group. She's only been an MP for uh, a number of years now, since 2015, but has already become one of the most prominent members of Parliament uh, over the last few years. She was chair of the European Research Group. She She's a rising star in the Tory party. Please give a huge political party welcome to Suella Braverman. <laughs> welcome to the show. Please take a seat. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, an interesting, uh, an interesting week for the Tories, specifically for Theresa May. There was an attempt today to perhaps change the rules so that she could only... Um, ride out a no confidence vote for six months instead of a year. Yeah. That appears to have been shelved. Um, when would you like to see her go? <laughs> <laughs> Rising star to failed <laughs> political career. Um, well, I agree with the 1922 committee's conclusions today, which is we shouldn't change the rules of the game halfway through. But Theresa May does have to set out some clarity about when she's going to leave, some specific dates, and give us all a bit of a timeline. Um, because I think, you know, she's been the leader of the party, um, the country. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of confusion, a lot of despair. And I think people do feel that she's responsible to a large extent for not delivering Brexit. I think it's only fair that she takes that responsibility. Uh, and in terms of setting out a timeline, does that mean she has to say, I would definitely go by Halloween? Or, or, or does she have to say, look, by September, I'll have booked a removal van. <laughs> by November, I'll be uh, writing my last set of Christmas cards. <laughs> but how, how clear a timetable does it need to be? Well, she's already said that she will go... She's, been, she's given a few options. Initially, she said she would go before the next general election, which leaves a, a large window. Then she said she would go sooner than she would like to go, which I think was a, a closing of the window. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that, you know, given the sense of, as I said, despair and uncertainty that we've got, you know, I think that it, she can't take us into the next phase. I don't think we can really stomach another extension so I think, you know, if it were me, I would be saying, you know, before October. Um, so, oh, so would you have a new leader ideally for the party conference? I think the sooner the better that we get on with this, actually, because we need to kill this uncertainty, this drift. Businesses are, you know, now not happy that we haven't... Uh, got a plan in, in, in sight. Um, I, I hear from my constituents and we are seeing the polls which are not looking good for these elections and that's all a reflection of this catastrophic failure to deliver on our promises. Um, and I think people are losing patience if they haven't done so already. Um, so yeah, I think we need something sooner rather than later. So, so how difficult is it to be a Conservative MP with a Conservative Prime Minister, I mean, just about, but, you know, scrape the last election with the help of the DUP in the end. Um, how hard is it to be a, a you know, Conservative and to look at your leader and kind of wish them gone and to kind of be organising for them to go? I mean, do, do, you, do you feel for Theresa May on any level? 
Yeah, listen, I have the utmost respect for her. I can't imagine anyone else who has worked harder on this mission. She's inherited such a difficult situation, you know, with the reduced majority and division in Parliament. Um, I don't know, you know, it, I can't imagine how hard it must have been. I was a minister at the Department for Exiting the EU last year. So I came a bit, I came close to the action of <laughs> negotiation of this treaty. And it has been, it's been a, an arduous task. So she, she's, she's had a great innings in a way. She's, she's had a good go at it. She's given it her all. Um, but I do think that she does need to move on, um, as she said she would. Um, it, and it feels very unnatural for me to be saying this, uh, let alone, you know, feeling it, because I've never, I've been a member for the party for 20 years, and I never thought I would be thinking that about my party leader. But I think we have to be honest, um, and we have to be honest about the failure to deliver on Brexit. I mean, whether it's, you know, saying you wouldn't have an election and then calling an election, whether it's saying you'd have the vote in December and then not having the vote in December, saying you would deliver Brexit on the March 29th and then not deliver it, you wouldn't have an extension beyond June the 30th and then having an extension beyond June, you know, saying no deal would be better than a, no, a bad deal and then really not wanting to deliver no deal. There's been so many kind of failures that my heart has sunk, unfortunately. So you served in her government. Did she ever say to you, Swella, crikey, I'll give you a job, mate. Like, back me up. Like, <laughs> does, she ever try, does she ever say, look, it's hard for women in politics, help me out? Does she, what, has she ever tried any lines of attack with you? Um, well, I mean, when I was a minister, um, I, re I did come into contact with her on a few occasions. Um, and actually, Dexu, the Department for Exiting the EU, is, at num is located at number nine Downing Street. So we're next door to, you know, the heart, the epicentre of the country. Um, and we could go to number 10 for some meetings, go into the cabinet room. Uh, and the prime minister would chair meetings that I attended. And she's a really effective chairman of, of meetings. She does allow lots of people to speak. She gives her opinion effectively. Um, and she's very encouraging of new MPs, actually. She's really, as, as a, a younger female in Parliament, you know, she's, she's very much supportive of, of us. And I've uh, been very grateful for that encouragement. Because she appointed, uh, I think, almost all leavers to the Department for Exiting the European Union. Every Brexit secretary was a lever. Uh, Barclay, Raab, Davis. Uh, ministers like yourself and Steve Baker served there. I mean, she must have known when she appointed you that at some point you were going to resign. Like, was there a kind of, was there a tension? When the, the Dexu ministers came in, were people going, oh, they come, the naughty lot. <laughs> what are they up to? Well, I think there was, I mean, if you look at the whole of government, there's never been a majority of Brexiteers. If you look at it in those polarised terms, the government has been dominated by Remain voting MPs. Uh, the cabinet was dominated by Ramon, Remain vote, Ramona's, <laughs> can't say that, uh, Remain voting <laughs> MPs. And um, so we've always been in the minority in government. We've always been in the minority in parliament. So it's always been an uphill battle. And um, I think that we've been a, a merry band of fighters. And, you know, the odds have been against us. Uh, my experience of government has was in some ways disappointing because I felt by the end of it that the government didn't have its heart in delivering a proper Brexit, a basic, clean and simple Brexit. Um, the civil service didn't want Brexit, really. 
and the establishment doesn't want Brexit, and that's been very hard to come to terms with. How difficult is it when you're a minister in a department like Dexia, which is set up to deliver, an, literally, the department for exiting the European Union, <laughs> and then there are civil servants in there that perhaps don't agree, and impact assessments are getting leaked, saying that certain types of Brexit would be disastrous, um, perhaps because they will be, um, but nevertheless... Um, Project Fear. Project Fear, but, then you're, but you're fighting against people. I mean, did you ever find individual civil servants who were leaking? Did it create a culture of suspicion? Um, th there were leaks. I think this is one of the leakiest governments that we've had um, in modern and recent history, actually. The cabinet, you know, you can find out more from James Forsyth or Sam Coates uh, or various journalists as to what happened in cabinet rather than actually speaking to any politicians these days. Did you have a leak? I've never, I, I haven't le leaked actually. I'm, I'm, really? I'm very, I don't think I'm very popular with journalists because I don't generally um, like to let things out from private meetings because I want my colleagues to feel that they can trust me. I suppose the thing is, if everyone's going to do it anyway, you can get, it gets out there. It's like people who film football matches on their mobile phone. You're like, Sky have got this covered, mate. Like if, you're, if, you're in a, if you're in a cabinet with Boris and Davis, it's getting out anyway, isn't it? It's only about five. It will leak and I can keep my hands clean. Um, it, it, in terms of the, the sort of merry band, um, there's a lot of talk of kind of Johnson versus Raab for the leadership. Uh, is it true that you're supporting Dominic Raab or that you're kind of in that group? I, I'll support Dominic Raab, yeah. Um, and what is it about Dominic Raab that, despite everything, <laughs> would make him a good Prime Minister? Oh, um, well, I do think there'll be a lot of really good candidates, I should say this, because there are some really talented people in the party who've got lots of experience and a lot of strength. Um, for me, I think it's important we have someone, that we have someone who voted to leave the European Union. Uh, I think actions speak louder than words. And someone who's actually taken a stand on Brexit is very important for credibility. So Dominic ticks that box for me. Um, I also think that he's someone of the next generation and a new face and got fresh ideas about uh, policy matters outside Brexit. And I just don't feel like this cabinet or anyone associated with this kind of ancien regime um, can be trusted to bring new and fresh ideas that we so desperately need uh, for centre-right, compassionate, conservative politics for the future. So, why not Boris? I'd, listen, I'd be very happy to serve uh, under Boris because I think that he is... We're uh, careful. <laughs> <laughs> to serve as a servant MP uh, for Boris. And he, uh, he, I think, is a unique campaigner. He yeah. is, you know, he's got a great track record of being um, someone who won London, uh, you know, a, a, a left-wing Labour-supporting city. And he can really light a room up and he gives great speeches and I'm a good friend of Boris's. So I would have nothing against Boris being and Prime he, Minister. Has he not tried to get on board? He's not said, Suella, I call you. Yeah, you Dominique is great, but, you know, I, you, you know, he wears trainers with a suit, for God's sake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I've seen him do. I don't trust any, don't trust any man who wears running trainers with a suit. I've not seen that. No, I've yeah. not seen that. It's just strange, isn't it? <laughs> Shoes with a suit, trainers, I, I mean, I don't know. I've not noticed. On the, tr on the track. Is he? It's not a, factor, mean, it's not a factor for me, for a Prime it, Minister. Is he yeah. known as a kind of fitness guy, Dominic? Um, 
So I worked very briefly with Dominic at the department. So he was Secretary of State for exiting the EU uh, while I was a junior minister. Oh, that was where he discovered that Britain was an island. <laughs> and he's really meticulous. I think he brings a really... He is. And he's really... Uh, he's got an exper experience as a, uh, an international lawyer. I think he's a tough negotiator. I don't think he's scared of the prospect of the UK leaving the EU, like I feel many of our MPs are. And he actually embraces the opportunities. So I think he'd be an inspiring leader for our party and our country. In terms of a no-deal Brexit, WTO rules or whatever it's called, there is anxiety about that, not just in Parliament, but in the country, even amongst people who voted Leave, because they think we wanted to leave perhaps the, the political institutions of, of Europe, but sort of crashing out and facing tariffs on cars, 45% or whatever else, and on food and all the rest of it. it WTO rules sound scary to, to me and, and, and to other people. Am I right to be anxious, or, or, or is this project fair, and, and actually would a no-deal Brexit be of any benefit to the economy at all? WTO rules are the foundation of trade for the vast majority of countries around the country, uh, around the world. <laughs> around the world. So they, they trade very profitably, lucratively and effectively. So I don't know where that fear comes from. Uh, we also have a large number of our own businesses in the UK who trade on WTO rules at the moment. Again, very profitably. In my part of the world, in Fareham, the nearest port is Southampton. And I visited Southampton, uh, the port recently, and 90% of the trade that goes through Southampton is on WTO rules. It goes to, you know, we're shipping cars to the States and we're getting prawns from the Philippines and clothes from Bangladesh. And that's not because we're a member of a customs union with any of those countries, that's WTO rules. So it all works really well for our nation and it's the foundation of international trade. The idea that it's gonna be, it's like this kind of um, monster of an, of, an, of an issue and it's going to cause chaos, I just don't feel is justified. So when the CBI and the, and the TUC and people like that say that it will, and the CBI obviously is someone that, you know, growing up was a, a conservative institution in the sense that it always seemed to be with the sort of more sympathetic to the Tory party than the Labour party, um, is saying, you know, the CBI is at odds with the Tory party. It feels like a sort of strange place. The CBI is um, essentially a, uh, a lobby group for the EU. I mean, it's got vested interests. It's all about big businesses, uh, which they don't represent the vast majority of small and medium-sized enterprises in the UK who are um, ve in very large part in favour of Brexit and even a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and they are essentially pro-status quo. They were in favour of the UK being part of the euro and the single currency. I'm very glad we didn't follow their advice on that occasion. Uh, they've called it out wrongly on many occasions when it comes to economic policy, and I just don't think they should be treated as if they're preaching the gospel. So there's, on, on all sides of the political debate, there seem to be kind of relationships breaking down, new relationships uh, emerging. The Brexit party has been launched, and they launched their European election campaign this week. I mean, if the polling's correct, it looks like they're going to decimate the Tories in these European elections. Some of your colleagues, Lucy Allen was tweeting about what great candidates they've got, and apparently some Tory MPs are going to vote for the Brexit party. Uh, are you tempted to support them in the European elections? 
I'm a conservative first and foremost, and I will Small always. Small C or big C? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll be voting both. Both. I will be voting for the Conservative Party both at the uh, at the European elections and if there's a general election, which I don't think there will be this year. That's my prediction. Um, but I, um, you know, I. I I, I understand where it's coming from. People, you know, as I said, people are angry, frustrated, and mm. and the consequence of us failing to deliver Brexit is that Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party will do well, and they'll capitalise upon that disappointment. Of course, that's that's definitely that that makes complete sense. I won't be supporting them. I don't believe that uh, a one-issue party can really uh, address many of the issues that uh, our uh, representatives need to deal with uh, and ultimately uh, yeah I'm a loyal conservative. So uh, Farage has launched his party um, a lot of people talk about the European research group like it's a party within a party I think some of that mystique has evaporated perhaps in the last year but certainly at first which had been around a long time but it's sort mm. of geared up again in the last few years uh, and you were chair of the ERG I mean people almost imagine it to be kind of masonic uh, are there any rituals? Uh, <laughs> are there any sort of traditions for the group you, you think we should know about? I somehow feel that we should be uh, kind of coming up with uh, rituals and shrines and some kind of... Goat's head sacrifices. Yeah, exactly. We should be kind of running around a fire or something like that <laughs> in the forest. But no, that doesn't happen before that becomes uh, goes viral. If we get a no-deal Brexit, that's what we might all be reduced to. <laughs> Um, uh, no, I mean, listen, the, the ERG is, you're right, it has acquired this kind of mystique. Um, I don't think it's really warranted. It's just a, a group of uh, MPs who want to deliver Brexit, essentially. That's what it is. And um, I think we get a harsh press. I think, you know, David Lammy just last week called us Nazis. And as you say, compared us to the far right. And I've, I've, I've lost count of all the things I've been called. I've been called a Nazi now quite a few times. I've been called a jihadi. I've been called an extremist. Uh, I've been called a xenophobe, a bigot, a racist. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I just bring it on. What, what's the next thing people are going to call me? I find it completely crazy that the language and the tone just gets escalated and I, I'm obviously none of those things and I wouldn't tolerate or condone any of those attitudes within the party and the ERGs definitely none of those things were anywhere near it. But do you worry with Brexit that you know sometimes you're getting lumped in with you know when you see you, there's a leave means leave rally and Tommy Robinson's around the corner addressing part of it you've got um, you know Jacob Rees-Mogg who it's been fantastic when he's been here, but retweeting AFD. It, there are... You, you can see why people who were worried might see those things as evidence. I think it's very tenuous. And I think you're making... The people who, who make those associations are just making too big a leap. I mean, the ERG and what I believe and is the ERG and having chaired it and support it now just wants us to leave the customs union and the single market and for the ECJ no longer to have jurisdiction and for us to have control over migration and to have an independent trade policy. In what way are those principles connected to the slaughter of six million Jews? But when you see, but when, this is the problem, and I walked through Parliament Square the day of the Leave Means Leave Relic, just by pure chance was at an event around the corner, and there were the kind of well-meaning, kind of English eccentrics there, you know, and it was the same sort of types of people that you got the People's Vote March, but there was also a really dark 
edge to it. And there was a lot of people there who were kind of felt football hooligans and were... There was a, the, the far right were definitely there. I mean, do you not think that as Brexiteers, whatever that movement is, Tory MPs just have to stop associating and be really clear that in the way that you've just been... Actually, we won't go out and address it at all. If Tommy Robinson is in that crowd, we won't come out and even speak to it. Yeah, of course, far-right elements in our society should be condemned, and I'm in no way associating with myself with them, nor, nor are any of my colleagues in the ERG, or many Brexit supporters who are just fair-minded, optimistic, patriotic Britons. Um, I, I'm not sure it is connected. I think this connection between the far right and Brexit is somehow, I think it's debatable or false or tenuous because the far left, the, yeah. the far left is just as vicious and virulent and militant actually. And, and as someone who's uh, been a, you know, put their head above the parapet and spoken in favour of Brexit, I've been on the receiving end of racist abuse uh, and xenophobia and sexist abuse. Um, and they're people who voted Remain. And they write to me and they say, you voted Remain, but go back to your own country, or you voted Remain, what right do you have to preach about Brexit? And so I'm not sure it's necessarily directly connected to leaving the European Union. No, but most people on the far right probably voted Leave. And most people on the far left probably voted Leave. Mm. So there is, a, I mean, not that that is any reflection necessarily of, of, of vote Leave or anything like that, although, you know... Certain things because perhaps debate, but I just think that people just need to lay clearer markers down, and, mm -hmm. and all movements have to do this. I think Jeremy Corbyn has been um, has not done it with his own side. That we're living in an era where sensible or, or, or you know calmer voices in these movements don't dare challenge the harsher elements of it. Mm -hmm. And I just really worried when Nigel Evans, who I get on with, who I've had on the show, was a great guest. When I saw him kind of chatting to parts of that rally, I just thought. A sensible conservative, one nation story, should not really be seen anywhere near any of that stuff. And mm. I just think, I just wish people were more vocal at dissociating themselves mm. from the harsh elements, mm. I guess. There are extremes on both sides of the political spectrums. And I guess it's about how moderate politicians relate to them. That's the point you're making. And yeah, I agree. I think you've, we've probably got all got a responsibility to call it out when we see it. Uh, in the ARG, you also have some uh, eccentric voices. Um, there's a chap called Marc Francois, who uh, is regularly on TV tearing up, uh, I think, letters from the EU. I, I presume he's working his way up to a Yellow Pages, but he's, um, <laughs> he's, he seems to be on a one-man shredding mission. Um, perhaps he's just ecologically minded. But um, is he... Uh, what's he like? <laughs> <laughs> Mark is uh, very committed. He's, <laughs> he's a character and all power to him. You know, he's someone who speaks his mind and I think that he's someone I think that's who, what people don't like. <laughs> um, he's a very effective MP. He's very much the voice of his constituency. I think his constituency is a majority leave constituency. Um, he's a patriot. He's got a... Uh, he, he just really feels strongly about the Brexit issue. And I think a lot of people have just become, you know, really, you know, really upset about it. And that, that spills over. And we, you know, we can all kind of keep it in and be very monotone and robotic and not show any emotion. Or you can sometimes, because we're all human, let it out. And um, 
<laughs> keep it in Mark. <laughs> Don't keep it in Mark. Uh, it's important where you put the comma in that sentence. But um, <laughs> it's uh, uh, the one. That, I mean, I, I have trying to be. I constantly trying to stay politically rational. Think even if I'm not getting my way, how would I feel? And I think Leave won the referendum. Mm-hmm. So I imagine it's been a very frustrating few years since the referendum for for anyone who voted Leave. And I also think. If you had a lever delivering Brexit, the tone would be completely different because it would, you know, whatever I think of Boris Johnson, if he was Prime Minister and he was delivering Brexit, he would be making a positive case. Now, it might be a case I completely disagree with, but the tone coming out of government actually would be, this is a great opportunity, Mm. even if I don't think it is, and everything else. Whereas with Theresa May, it's kind of been a reluctant... Mm. Now, Theresa May might be delivering something closer to what I want, which Mm. is a softer Brexit or no Brexit at all, um, but in a way, I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for the Leave side because you won, it hasn't yet been delivered, and it's really hard not to draw the conclusion that for you it would be far better to have a Leave in Downing Street mm-hmm. delivering what the majority wanted in that referendum. Um, it's a, I mean, obviously, you, you would support Dominic in the future. In the last few years, who would have been the best person, do you think? Gosh. Um... I mean, do you ever fancy it yourself? Um, That's very kind of you to ask. Um, Surely I'm not the first person who's asked. um, Well, I mean, I think I've just been in Parliament for not even four years. Uh, I've resigned from my ministerial post (laughs) in a blaze of glory. I've, you know, probably, you know, the Prime Minister won't be very happy with me for calling for her to set out exactly when she's going to leave. Um, I, you know, I'm just here to, I really want to see Brexit delivered and whatever way that's done will make me happy. And if, and and it's so hard to make predictions, but do you think Brexit will be delivered? And if so, when? Yeah, Um, I've also given up making predictions because (laughs) none of them have come true. Um, I think it will. I, I do ultimately have an innate faith in our democratic system, even though that's being stretched right now. And it's all looking really deplorable and... Is, 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 is worrying for everybody around the world when they look at our so-called mother of parliaments failing in such a bad way. But I do ultimately have faith that it will be, we will leave the EU. Um, I don't know when that will be, I can't say. I would like it to be before or in October, um, but given the numbers in parliament, um, the dynamics, the sense of, there's lack of momentum, we're just drifting right now. Um, I can't see that happening. Because I think you're right when you say you know the, the world is watching, and, and it's, mm. I think it's drawing different conclusions. And I think I've, I think the Remain side have to be very careful. And I include myself in that in saying, well, the world's just laughing at us. Because the reality is, is that not all the world is. Mm. Um, some people feel emboldened by it. I worry about who some of those people are. Um, but also, I mean, and this is going to sound so sad, but I really worry about Britain's role in the world mm. and whatever the history that we have to own. In recent years, post-Second World War, as a major player on the European stage, there have been no wars between European nations since the dawn of the EU. We've played a leading role in it. We've been a positive member of the EU. You know, we've been problematic, but we're a nuclear power, a big economy. We're European by geography, and I feel that this is the start of a withdrawal, not just from Europe, but from our internationalist responsibilities. Mm. Am I right to feel so anguished? Do you think Brexit is the cause of that or the failure to deliver Brexit? Oh, I think voting to leave is the problem right, that I have. I just right. think, oh, don't... I, think, I feel right. like we should... I feel like by pooling sovereignty, we make ourselves stronger. 
You see, I see it in such a different way. I just think we are a country for our population that punches above its weight. And we have brought so much to the world, which is admired globally. And when The Beatles, I've... the pasty. <laughs> Uh, the NHS, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our universities, our education system, our legal system. I was a lawyer before I went into Parliament, and I've uh, worked abroad, and um, I've worked in legal development projects in developing countries, and they look to the UK to see how it's done. Um, our parliamentary system, believe it or not, uh, our financial services, um, our language, our literature, our innovation, there's so much that I'm so proud of in our country. And I feel that the European Union is holding us back, actually. And I don't think that Brexit needs to mean uh, decline in our position in the world. I actually think it's a springboard for us to flex our muscles more pivot more globally and beyond a declining market, which is the EU, and towards more emerging markets like Asia and uh, South America and Africa, uh, and rekindle Commonwealth connections, uh, actually enable more trade and exports to grow, um, to, to, to go global, truly global. And I, and I believe that can only be a good thing for future generations. But I mean, there's two things. One is just the politics of it, is that aren't you better staying around a table with your closest neighbours? And isn't it sad that we're going to withdraw from that? And secondly, I, would a lot of Leave voters want to go global in the sense of welcoming more people here from other countries? Because it felt like they don't. So I, I think politically, I don't think Brexit needs to mean that we sever political alliances. Yeah. We have a strong political alliance with the US and we're not in a trading, um, you know, a customs union or a single market or we haven't given up sovereignty to the US. You know, and that applies for many other countries. And I, I actually think that we have always had, as you say, a very difficult relationship with the EU uh, because of our... Um, of our strengths, actually. And I, I, I just think the trading uh, limits that are placed on the EU, the fact that we don't have enough of a say around the EU table, and the fact that the future is outside the EU, I really believe that. And I think that we have, we're missing a trick. We're missing a great opportunity by not fully embracing the trading and economic and sovereignty um, opportunities. And actually, from a, a, a people participation point of view, from a civic uh, democracy part of, point of view, you know, we can inject more accountability to our politicians. I won't be able to just shrug my shoulders when it comes to migration, because unfortunately, being a member of the EU means that that decision is outsourced to Brussels and UK politicians and the UK Parliament has no say on migration or whether it's, whether it's migration or other whole swathes of regulations affecting our industries. And I think it will enliven our democracy. I just wonder, do you, I mean, do you feel European you know, emotionally? Because I feel... I feel British, but there is part of me that feels European. You know, I like going to France and Italy and feeling, oh, actually, you know, we're very different in some ways, but I kind of feel like, oh, it's quite cool to feel European and feel that somehow we're all, we're all part of this. I mean, is, is there any part of you that will, will feel sad if and when we leave? I don't think, again, leaving the EU means that, it doesn't mean to coin the phrase, to repeat the, the hackneyed phrase, leaving the EU is not leaving Europe. And I will still feel European. Um, I, I, I actually... Being a separate queue at the airport... <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have nightmare. different, different coloured passports. <laughs> um, those big, big, the big deal, the big things. Um, 
I mean, I, I actually am quite Europhiliac in some ways. You know, I lived in France for two years. I speak, speak fluent French and I have many of my family who are French Francophiles and Francophonie because my mother is originally from Mauritius. And, um, and I've got a lot of connections with the, the continent. And I never thought I'd be a Brexiteer. If, if you asked me 10 years ago, would I want to leave the EU? I would have thought, no, you know, I'm, I, I've loved France and I, you know, I've had this love affair with Paris and I spend all my summers in Spain and Italy. No way. But actually on closer inspection, when I became an MP and after, becoming, after working as a lawyer, where I saw that we have the best, I believe, the best legal system in the world and yet our judges are subjugated by a foreign court. They don't have the final say on legal disputes affecting British individuals and British businesses, and we have foreign courts deciding that, where we, we don't have our parliament having the final say on our rules and regulations, again, outsourced to an external body where most people don't know what's happening. I just felt, wow, actually, sovereignty and trade opportunities uh, are being squandered because of our membership of the EU, and that's why I, then, that's when I became radicalised. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And um, <laughs> who radicalised you? <laughs> Over the course of the referendum, and <laughs> I was uh, a disinterested. I was. I did not enter politics because of the European question. Not at all. I came into politics. I've been passionate about it for many years, and I've been really interested uh, more, more in domestic issues, education, and how do we empower our young people to realise their potential? Uh, how do we inspire people to take responsibility and realise their dreams um, with, you know, in, in our country? And why, why, we, why is there underachievement? Why is there failure to, you know, to grow in our country. Um, those are the things that I really have been inspired by, not the EU at all. It was only David Cameron's decision in 2015, 2014 that got me thinking about it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So do your, do your French relatives... How do they feel about it? Um, they, they are bemused. <laughs> they are bemused, I have to say, um, on my mother's side. Many of them have... Um, they've definitely taken their opportunity to let me know that they don't necessarily agree <laughs> with my view. They see, they're more saddened. That's, you know, when I've travelled around the continent as well, people in many European countries are sad that the UK is leaving. Um, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to be a sad event. It can be a new beginning. 
Oh yeah, but I mean, you have new you have new beginnings after all sorts of awful things, don't you? After <laughs> atom bombs and things, you know, <laughs> new beginning after a meteorite shower. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I take the point, I absolutely take the point, and I have to be so careful not to make presumptions about Brexiteers, about the argument, uh, or people's intentions and things like that, which is why you know, it's so good to hear from people who are genuinely passionate about leaving without why they want to leave, because it is a legitimate political standpoint, and obviously it's the majority political standpoint. Mm. Um, if there was to be a second referendum or a vote on the deal, whatever, um, what do you think would happen? In a second referendum? I actually think Leave would win by a larger margin because there's resentment, there's disappointment, there's frustration, there's anger, as I said before. And I think those who are calling for a second referendum should be very careful about what they're asking for. I mean, one thing that I think... Uh, William Hague uh, was on the, the, the show, uh, God, it was probably a couple of years ago now, but he, he made a very good point about general elections. And he said, you never get to fight the <laughs> same campaign twice. <laughs> and I just think... I, I, I think... It, <laughs> just an excuse to get an impression out. Um, I what Noel Gallagher would think of a second referendum. It was... Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, right? But our kid, right, he thinks it's a fucking great idea. So, um, anyway, so <laughs> but, but wouldn't the, wouldn't the problem for Leave be now is that Leave is now the establishment because you've won and you're in the majority and the Remainers would be the insurgent campaign and that would, the, the tables have turned a bit in that regard. Well, I think Remain... I mean, I think at the moment it's being seen as an establishment stitch-up by an, a Remain-dominated establishment. And I think it's very much kind of people versus the establishment, the people having voted Leave and the establishment wanting us to remain. Um, I can only see that, and I'm looking at the polls, I'm looking at the Brexit party doing well, I'm looking at um, how uh, people are responding to us on the doorstep at the moment. Um, I can only see that sentiment to leave the European Union strengthening, mm. actually. And even many people who I come across, it's anecdotal of course, but people who voted Remain reluctantly, um, were leavers in their heart but Remainers in their head. Um, you know, would now have... I've met too many people to, for it to be funny, but who've come to tell me in my constituency uh, that they would now vote to leave. I've had, I had some Liberal Democrats come up to me in what? Fairham. I, I know, I know. They still exist. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you see them through binoculars at distance? I was... Yeah, I know, it was a, it was a, sh a shocking moment. And uh, they came up to me and said, Suella, you know, I know you're a bit crazy about Brexit, aren't you? And we, we've put up with you for a couple of years, but we've been lifelong Remainers. We wanted a second referendum. But we've seen how badly the EU has treated the UK. We actually want a WTO Brexit. We want it now. And I was absolutely stunned into silence. I didn't think I'd ever hear that from a Lib Dem. And that, how did you know they were Lib Oh, socks with sandals, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> Did they did they have like rosettes on or? They told me they were you know full disclosure. They... Self identified. <laughs> and now they've transitioned to. Uh, to be, yeah. To be... They should come and join the ERG. They'd be very welcome. So what? So the ERG then, just to come back to the. But what are the meetings like? And like, firstly, how regular are they? Does the ERG meet weekly? It's very regular. Yeah, we have a weekly meeting. Yeah. In which committee room? <laughs> we we rove. We we go from one to another. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. like a like a terror cell. <laughs> <laughs> <Just kind of laughs> 
You've all got burner phones. It's up line of duty. The OCG. The ERG could be the OCG. Um, Ryan yourself, big man. Um, I wonder what Hastings would make of <laughs> Do you watch Line of Duty? No, I don't. Oh, okay. No, I don't. Such a good TV show. Um, but, do, but is that is that just because it's hard to book rooms in Parliament? Exactly. Or are you trying to sort of outfox people? It's are... just because of administrative uh, reasons. It's nothing sinister. And... Um, uh, I've kind of got to explain that about everything the ERT <laughs> does. It's always got to be ended with, it's nothing sinister. And in terms of the tone of the meeting, like, is it a good laugh or is it very serious? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I, I go that I'm going through a bit of, you know, malaise at the moment because I feel very, I feel very sad. I feel very sad about the situation that we're in. We should have left by now. Um, you know, not just Brexit, but also for like trust and integrity and, you know, um, confidence. I just feel so sad about the situation. So I'm like managing a depression at the moment. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, I've got to manage my sadness about it and also be quite, you know, what, what's the solution? How's this going to happen? How are we actually going to honour what we said we would do? The meetings, um, you know, a lot of people are feeling that way. A lot of people are feeling disappointed. A lot of people are feeling powerless and frustrated. There's no clear way in Parliament. We feel that there's a lot of deadlock and there's a lot of, um, yeah, uncertainty. And it is really, it's just really sad because it all, you know, it's very clear, it's very clear what, we, what should have happened. I mean, obviously, no one wants you to feel sad. I, I, I thought, I just presumed that the ERG meetings were kind of basically sort of stag do where <laughs> Francois gets leathered and sort of tears stuff up, you know, and <laughs> Jacob quotes a bit of Latin and it's all kind of, you know, sort of kind of a bit of a lark. But it sounds actually like as a group you're quite troubled. I wouldn't, well, yeah, people are, people aren't happy. People aren't. Yeah, we're sad, so therefore we're not happy. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this is a really awful situation. And so in the group, who are the people that... I imagine Jacob Rees-Mogg is a kind of figure of strength. He says, so well, it would be fine. You would eventually leave. I don't know why everyone's getting so terribly animated. I, I, it may not be tomorrow. But that might be more Michael Hessel time. Uh, the, but I'm, is he a figure of strength? Is he someone that people coalesce around? Jacob's brilliant. Um, I, you know, he, he chairs the meetings, so he um, he'll give a bit of an introduction about what's been happening. There's always a lot to update people on. Yeah. There's always things happening with Brexit, and then uh, people are given a chance to share their views, and then Jacob kind of sums up, and then we just look ahead. And you'll sort of sit in a circle and kind of go, <laughs> "My name's Suella. I've been a Brexiteer for <laughs> five years." So. Last Googled the EU three minutes ago. I'm <laughs> really obsessed, to be honest, but... Uh, is, it, is it sounding like a therapy group? Yeah, is it, is it kind of support network, I suppose? Um, well, definitely there's camaraderie and support because, we, as I said, we do feel like we are... Um, we've been robbed a little bit, um, that we're in a minority in a, an organisation, whether that's parliamentary or the party that doesn't want to deliver on a... Oh, on the manifesto promises. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of support that people give each other. So at the moment, we're going to leave on Halloween. Yeah. 
Will that affect your plans at all? Like, are you, but I mean, there's a potential, isn't there, for some amazing for Brexiteers, some really quite cool house parties. <laughs> I hadn't been thinking that way myself. No. Um, I mean, that is that, that that does give me some hope. You know, if we have someone who really wants to take us out by October, we could leave by October. We could properly leave, actually. Whether it's with a reformed deal, which would be my preference, or on WTO terms, we, we, could leave, we could be out by November, which would be brilliant. I, mean, I wonder if, if the two are forever remembered together, Brexit and Halloween, I wonder if some of the tropes about Halloween will be, you know, people in 20 years' time saying, oh, Brexit's become very commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it used to just be about leaving the European Union, but the Americans got involved and these kids running around in EU flags and that. It's just, it's not the same. <laughs> um, so you say an improved deal, and mm. presumably the way to improve the deal is, is something around the backstop. Yeah. Some sort yeah. of time limit or, or yeah. whatever it is. Um, at the moment, the, the triangle that can't be squared is that if, if you... No-one wants a hard border, but if you leave without a deal, at the moment, that would mean a hard border. Incorrect. OK, so how, how is it incorrect? Um, because, as we've heard, um, the EU, Michel Barnier, the Irish, um, Veradka and the British, Theresa May, have all said that in a no-deal scenario, no-one would put up any infrastructure to... Uh, make up a hard border. So I'm not quite sure who's putting up this hard border. Martians from space, the Chinese, Donald Trump, someone, but it's not going to be the EU, the Irish or the British. But at the moment, no technology exists to not allow for border checks. It doesn't need technology. So the Malt House Compromise, which did command a majority. <laughs> now we're getting really geeky, aren't we? No, this uh, is good. Yeah, the Malt House Compromise, Plan B, of that, it's, it comes in a plan A and a plan B, which is a kind of managed no deal, which got commanded the support of Nicky Morgan and Damien Green and Steve Baker and Jacob. You know, a, a solution um, would involve existing procedures that are used already. And as a minister, I looked closely into this and there are practitioners and experts out there who I've met. They're not fantasy people. They are real life men and women who are border technicians who have done this stuff around the world cheaply, efficiently. And <laughs> cheaply doesn't fill me with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it for your dirt cheap. <laughs> yeah, of course they work. <laughs> no, no, <it's> just... <laughs> affordably, affordably. It's not, you know, what, what's been in the papers recently, which is this, this extortionate price and it's not even possible. There's, there is there are administrative procedures uh, which could be applied to the Northern Irish context and we wouldn't have this whole kind of fabricated problem, which is a hard border. I think we say a fabricant problem, which is a, an entirely, <laughs> entirely different uh, affair. Um, away from politics, um, uh, you were recently married. Yes. I went from being Suella Fernandez to being Suella Braverman. We say Braverman. Oh, Braverman. Oh, yes. I would say Braverman, but someone said to me today it's Braverman. No, no, oh, that's I've got, wrong it, I've got as it even well. more it's wrong. It's Brav. It's Brav like Chav. <laughs> <laughs> your husband must be delighted. Um, I saw a great video on your local paper website where on the day of your wedding you play Mr. and Mrs. with, yes. your, with your husband. Yes. Um, and when asked who the best cook is, you both agree that it's you. Yes. And one of the things you say is you cook a very good spaghetti bolognese. Now, did I say that? You did, yeah. And, and that's my favourite dinner. And I'm not, I'm not asking you to come around and cook, but 
Do you have... Do you have any tips for a really good spaghetti bolognese? Oh, oh yes. Well, I have to say my mother-in-law gave me the instructions. Okay. So she's got to get the credit. Um, she says it's got to take about two and a half to three yes, hours. Yes, cook it slow. Cook it slow on a low heat. Yep. That's the trick. Because in the past, I used to cook it quick. Yes. Oh, God, I you don't know. get the flavour. No. Lean steak mints. Uh, yep. Are you draining it? Or no. Not? No, okay. Because no. I used to drain it and then that's a bad idea. No. What about adding things like carrots or broccoli? Yeah, add carrots. Yeah. Uh, not broccoli. Mm, really finely. You know what? If you no. really finely basically shave it in. I haven't. And grate the carrots okay. in as well so it all melts in. Yeah. Right, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking for tips all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beef and pork. Beef and pork. Absolutely right. Beef okay. and pork. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, yes. I will, I'll try that next time she as well. Although she's a chef in Salisbury, so, you know, be careful. <laughs> well, that is true, isn't it? <laughs> At ZZ's, is it? <laughs> <laughs> she's a chef in Salisbury, it's true. Um, uh, okay, so... Um, uh, mushrooms as well. Oh, see, I don't like mushrooms, oh. innit? Uh, there we go, got a vote okay, so We're trying to build bridges away from Brexit. Okay, so that's good, so... Um, <laughs> be a no-meal Brexit if I'm not careful. Uh, I try that joke every month and it always gets a grab. Um, on the question of who's a better driver, um, you both agree that it's your husband? Yes. Um, is it just that he's particularly good or you know, are you a danger? <laughs> um, no, he's, he works in the car industry. He's grown up with cars, oh, he loves them. <laughs> and uh, I, and he's a Brexiteer actually. So listen, you know, not everyone who works in the car industry is Remain. Um, he and he loves cars, and he he's grown up with them, and he loves them, and he's very good at driving them. I'm okay. I'm okay. I do the job. Um, and uh, oh, the final question I ask you is, who would be the best prime minister? Yes. And he says say? him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, is, he, is he being cheeky? <laughs> He'd be a good Prime Minister. He's got very good judgement. He's, um, he's very passionate about his politics. And uh, he's not afraid to say it how it is. So I think that's, they're good qualities for a Prime Minister. Yeah, if he's a good driver, you know, um, he'd be good at U-turns. <laughs> <laughs> he would have a reverse gear, which Tony Blair obviously claimed not to have had. Um, Something of other relatively lame driving puns, but I think I've, uh, I think I've reached a, a dead end. But um, uh, <laughs> um, I don't want to sort of quell the hell. Well, I'll tell you what was interesting recently was um, you getting into trouble isn't the right phrase, but maybe it is. Um, you use the phrase cultural Marxism, which it turns out is used by people like Anders Breivik and things like that, and you used it not knowing that, that, that it meant that. Um, and t to be fair, when you said it, I didn't realise mm. that it had that history uh, until I sort of, re you know, as a result of the story, refreshed my memory and realised that it had this, this awful history uh, of anti-Semitism. How, firstly, the Board of Deputies have been, you know, have met with you and said that, um, you know, they, they totally accept that you used it not knowing. That and they said sorry as well. Yeah. For kind of criticising how how hard is it, you know, particularly in, a, in an environment that we're living in now, with Brexit on one side, with, with, with Corbyn, and just in general, mm. fast-moving language to keep on top of what phrases you can and can't use? Mm. I think that's so interesting, actually, that 
I believe, and this is what I was getting at in my speech when I used the term, um, is that there's this kind of political correctness. There's this gagging of freedom of speech. There's this <clears throat> um, shrouding of debate. There's a no one can get offended anymore. Um, and that's a growing culture in our society. Um, and we see it in many, many areas. There's no platforming in our universities. They're supposed to be quintessential institutions of liberalism. And yet, um, you know, guests are um, rejected from attending universities to speak to students. Um, people are being sacked just because they've got, they're debating or challenging the status quo. Uh, we can see it in our press and our media, actually. I've read recently that the UK is now really ranked badly for press freedoms um, by global standards, which I found quite surprising. But there's quite a lot of clamping down on what our media can do. Uh, and all, in, in many, many areas in our justice system, as I saw uh, as a lawyer, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of you can't say this or you can't think this. And I think it is I think I believe it's come from the left. Uh, and it's a, a, a curbing of freedoms. Uh, and I think that's very dangerous. But, I mean, are there people that you would not share a platform with? You'd have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, of course. Listen, you know, people who hold abhorrent views and are actively propagating that or inciting hatred, I, I would never want Remainers. to... Remainers. <laughs> <laughs> the People's um, Vote, best for Britain. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be part of events which enable them to speak. But then, I suppose that's the point, is that everyone's got their own line. So how do we objectively decide who we do and who we don't platform? Yeah, you've got to take a, a, a reasonable view. And so with this term cultural Marxism, you didn't know that it had, you know, associations with the far right from the 1940s, apparently. I, I didn't know that. Um, I spoke to many, many academics and... Um, Jewish people who are supposed to have been offended by this, I didn't meet anybody who'd understood that term in that context. So I think a reasonable man on the bus, as, as a lawyer, you'd say the, the man on the Clapham omnibus, what would he think? And I think you've got to apply that objective standard. And I think we're heightening, um, we're lowering the thresholds of sensitivity in our society. And I think that's um, a really unhealthy thing. So we know what the man on the night on the bus would think, but what about the man on the night bus? Because that's a very, it's a very different animal. Um, he's drunk, he's angry, his kebab's gone cold. I mean, does, does the Clapham Omnibus even exist anymore? What would be the? It, 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 it's, um, it's a term for the, yeah. the man on the street, the man on the the average guy or lady. Uh, well, indeed. The lady on the bus. The lady on the bus. What would the lady on the number 92 bus think? Well, she might be driving it. <laughs> she could be driving it, yeah. She might say, don't talk to me while I'm driving. You're a hazard. What is it with you Brexiteers? You know, shut up about Europe. Uh, but I, I, I guess you're right that there are, there are phrases that, you know, whatever we call... I suppose the, the problem with defining these things is... When you say reasonable people, even what is reasonable is, is subjective. Yeah, that's true. And, and there's, I think, it, there's an unhealthy uh, trend that this objection and the kind of vitriol and the shutting down of free speech is coming from the left. You know, I was criticised on Twitter, albeit, but by, by left-wing academics, actually, uh, who are sitting in their Islington coffee houses talking about the rights and wrongs of Proust, you know, and, and they're getting really upset that I use this term. 
Whereas the right wing, I find, is a little bit more, you know, live and let live. Yeah, people like Clarkson, uh, <laughs> Richard Littlejohn, kind of, you know, you know, great open-minded. <laughs> um, it exists on both, you know, the, the reality is there are reactionary forces on both sides, aren't Yeah, they? yeah. No, I accept that. I accept um, that. But the uh, left really reacted very to, to, to what I said. And yet, as I said, um, it's the left that have called me a Nazi. It's the left that wants to stop freedom of discussion. I don't really sense that from. But that the might right. be your experience because you're on the right, whereas yes. people on the right say actually, people on the left say it's people on the right. You know, the yes, hard no, line is like, and obviously he's not your sort of right winger, but you know, people like Tommy Robinson and people like that. Are yeah. Fairly direct individuals when it comes to what they believe. Yeah, that's true, and 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 yeah, you are right. It, it's on both sides. It's on both sides. So then, the, those of us in the middle. I mean, would you class yourself as a centrist? I would. Say, I'd describe myself as a centre-right conservative. Yeah, politician. A so, moderate conservative. It, so taking Brexit out of it, taking Europe out of it, who were the conservative politicians in history you most identify with? Um, well, I th well, I think there's a mixture. I'm a mixed, a mishmash of <laughs> various people. Um, I have been inspired by Margaret Thatcher for many, many reasons. I think that economically, she took very tough and necessary decisions to turn our economy around when she inherited uh, the premiership, our economy and our country. You talk about international humiliation. We were definitely a humiliation, a humiliation on the globe. Uh, and she rejuvenated our economy through making very unpopular decisions. So I think economically, I really do believe in a small state fewer regulations, uh, letting people keep the money that they earn. Uh, I have a, a scepticism of taxation and excessive state intervention, and I want to empower individuals, and I don't assume that the state always knows best. So that's the kind of conservative I am. But equally, you know, I, David Cameron's very inspiring. He had more of a social justice agenda. Disraeli, if we want to go back to the 19th century. Yeah, Tamworth Manifesto. A, a, a one-nation conservative, you know, who sees that uh, class barriers are, uh, are, uh, are prohibitive to progress uh, and that uh, a welfare state is not a, an evil thing and that the state does have some responsibility to help those who fall on hard times. So I don't know what you want to call that, who you want to call that, but that's my... my particular mix of conservatism. Okay, so who, uh, here's a, maybe a more interesting one. Who are the Labour figures you admire? Oh, right. Um, <laughs> a bit harder. Uh, I think, well, not Jeremy Corbyn. His politics is definitely anathema to me. He's, yeah, he's a Brexiteer, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he's the biggest Brexiteer in Parliament. I mean, he is, uh, I'm sure he voted leave in, that, in the privacy of that ballot box. Um, but I do believe that his his Marxist agenda, his nationalisation, his uh, wanting to tax everybody, his anti-business uh, you know, rhetoric, which I believe will, would be realised if he ever became Prime Minister, his assumption that the state should provide uh, and that there should be centralised provision uh, and that the private sector is just such a uh, inimical force in our country, I, I think that would all be a disaster for, for the UK. Um, on the Labour side, um, gosh, I'm I'm going to struggle here. I, I mean, you know, you've got to you've got to say that Tony Blair was an effective politician. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at the very least, at the very least. I mean, 
I guess what you're saying is the greatest of all time. <laughs> I, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. There's a, a lot I disagree way. with Tony Blair. And when I was, uh, I, 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 you know, I started my career and I was at university under the Blair years and I, I was the first generation that had to pay tuition fees because of uh, the Blair reforms. I, you know, the Iraq war, I think, was ill-founded. Uh, I think many of his, I think this left-wing culture and domination of our country that I've, I'm worried about started with Blair. Uh, I think he, he, didn't, he didn't leave the, the public finances in a good state. So I think there's a lot of problems with Tony Blair, but you can't deny his effectiveness of uh, leading the country um, <laughs> and his electoral, his electoral victories, which I think are remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I mean like you say, he's the greatest of all time. But, um... <laughs> So who are, do you have, I mean, this is always a good question. Do you have friends on the opposite side? So are there any Labour MPs you should talk to? And who are the Remainers that you, you get on with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, with, in terms of Labour, yeah. I mean, the, the Brexiteers in the Labour camp are definitely friends of mine. Geisler? Uh, yep, Gisela. Gisela. Oh, yeah. God, I can't get <laughs> um, Kate Hoey? Kate Hoey's a good lady. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, God, it must be hard. So hard for her. I feel for her sometimes. She's a lone voice uh, in the benches on the benches of her party. Uh, John Mann. I'm, MP for Bassett Law. Yes, absolutely. And you know, speaks. <laughs> uh, you know, very powerful orator. Actually, a northern accent like that. Don't <laughs> you? Very, uh, very pernickety when it comes to detail. <laughs> Uh, you're, a, you're, an, you're a racist, Mr Livingstone. <laughs> His finest moment was chasing Ken Livingstone down the street. I saw that, yeah. You're a racist, Mr Livingstone. That's something from an old film. I'll be having word with Foreman about your racism. <laughs> thrown off sight. Very good. But good on him. You know. He's a great um, guy. I that. like John. On um, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, as you say, he's been very, very outspoken about it. And rightly, Ian Austin. Very good friend of mine. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dudley North? Yes. Yeah. No longer Labour, though, unfortunately, independent. Yeah, so how did you feel about the the Conservative defections to the independent group, Sarah Wollaston, Heidi Allen and and Anna Soubry? Yeah, really disappointed because they're really, they're nice nice people. And I I got elected with Heidi Allen um, together. So, you know, I've, we've had quite a few cups of teas together over our time in Parliament and sat with her and, uh, in the chamber. And I've always found her to be a really passionate, a, a passionate politician, actually, yeah. And you still chat to her? I haven't, I've, I've, we've kind of seen each other, but we haven't, I think there's a lot going on. I think that's why, but there's no animosity on my part towards Heidi. I have a lot of respect for her. And she's a party leader now. You're right, yes, yes, absolutely. Is there part of you that goes, oh, fair play. She, she got there first. <laughs> you know, but like in terms of like intake, do you know what I mean? Oh, she's a party leader now. But, mm. I mean, I mean the Change UK thing. I'm I'm not really that impressed by it, if I'm honest. I think it's come across as a little bit amateur. I'm not really sure what their policies are beyond a second referendum. Um, they seem to be very incoherent and um, all over the place on economic policy, on what they want to do with our defences. I don't know if they're trying to be. Um, an anti-Corbyn Labour Party or an anti-May Remain Party. I'm not quite sure what they're trying to be. So they are. there's a lot of vagueness and I don't understand what they're all about. OK, well, let's take some questions from the audience. So if we could indicate clearly by putting your hand up and we'll get a, uh, we'll get a roving mic over. Is there anyone in this section of the room that would like 
So ask a question, yes, to the gentleman there with the hand up. If you wait for the microphone, let us know your name, and if you can ask for one sentence questions and one sentence answers. Okay, uh, my name's Lawrence. I'll keep it to one sentence. So, what would you recommend would be the guys that do's and don'ts for the um, Trump state visit in a couple of months mm -hmm. to increase the chances of a great um, uh, trade deal with America post-Halloween? Great question. Hey, wow. Well, we must have left the EU, I think. I think that would be really good if we've actually put our money where our mouth is and left and we're not in the customs union and we haven't done a deal with Labour which keeps us in the customs union because any deal that keeps us in the customs union will prevent a UK-US trade deal, and I think that would be very, very sad. Uh, and, and how do you feel about Donald Trump coming for a state visit? Well, you know, he's... I think that America, that the purse, the office holder, is bigger than the office. So I think we shouldn't judge it by personality. There's a lot of things that are objectionable with Donald Trump, for sure. But we need this alliance. I think the UK, UK and the US have a historic relationship. It is the special relationship, you know, spoken so fondly about by your hero. And, uh, you know, uh, and I think that we've got to maintain that relationship, not break it. Uh, have you met Donald Trump? No, I haven't. And do you want to meet him? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he's a, he's a curious, interesting figure, definitely. I have been to the US and I have been to the White House. I've been to Congress. And I've met some of his, um, the people at the Oval Office um, on a parliamentary visit, and it was really interesting. You're not worried about meeting him? No. He's, well, he's, you know, he can be, can be difficult with people, can't he, to put it politely? Yeah, well, listen, I think that, yeah, he can, uh, yeah, he's, he's not expressed himself in the most uh, diplomatic yeah. terms. And he has some views that I definitely disagree with. But I don't think that means... But he's been elected legitimately by the American people, and I think that that has to be respected. He gets everyone's name wrong. i got to say, Nigella, it's an honour to meet you. And, you. and the beautiful people of Faversham, and they're great people. They're great people. And, by the way, Nigella got elected with the biggest majority, two million people. Two million people. Very true. Very <laughs> Okay, are there any more questions in this section of the room before we move the microphone on? Yes, right at the back there. Hi. Um, I know you, you say it's project fear, any, any economic downturn from Brexit, but let's just say that it's, it's not and it's reality. How much economic pain do you think would justify Brexit, especially a no-deal Brexit? Mm. So I don't think... Uh, a no-deal Brexit is not my ideal um, situation. It's my second-best outcome. Um, and I'm not saying there won't be challenges, economically or otherwise, but I do believe that we'll overcome them. I think that our economy is resilient enough to overcome any economic pressures that come from a no-deal uh, Brexit, but ultimately there are also economic benefits. For example, the tariff, the trade deficit that we have with the EU means that we actually get a windfall in tariff revenue because we're buying more from the EU than the other way around. So that's, that's in, in excess of, that's tens of billions of pounds every year coming into the Exchequer because of our trading relationship and the strength of our trading relationship. That's, number, that's one of many economic benefits that we don't hear enough about. There's a lot of benefits from deregulation that could be uh, gathered because of a no-deal Brexit. So yes, there will be some challenges. But I do believe, and this is based on previous forecasts, which were made by the Treasury and made by the government, made by the CBI, made by the Bank of England, 
which all predicted that we should be in a recession now, that all predicted that we should have unemployment and um, capital flight, and none of that happened. In fact, the very opposite happened. We're having, we've, we've seen a growing economy, we're seeing rising employment, uh, notwithstanding all of those predictions. So I look back on the facts uh, and I look at the state and the resilience of the UK economy. But let's say disaster strikes and, and leaving the European Union triggers some sort of economic meltdown and there's mass unemployment and rioting. At any point, do you go, actually, this isn't worked out. Mate, would, would, is there anything that would make you change your mind, do you think, theoretically? I think we've got to... Um, I mean, I just think that that's kind of such... I mean, coming back to the world of reasonableness, yeah. it hasn't been borne out by the facts. Um, and I appreciate we haven't left, but I just... Um, I, I think that there's enough um, robustness with our economy, with our system, to overcome those challenges in the medium to long term. And as I said, I don't deny that there will be uh, hurdles, but I do think that um, it, it wasn't ultimately the economics uh, that persuaded people to vote leave. Uh, and I think people voted knowing that there were other benefits which were not necessarily economic li economically linked, but from so for sovereignty, for democracy, for law, for migration. Uh, and I think the bigger picture has to be borne in mind. Okay, is there anyone in this part of the room? Yes, the gentleman at the front. Well, let's take both and then pass the mic to, to the chairman. Um, hi, I'm Scott. Um, you mentioned the phrase compassionate conservatism earlier when you were talking about Dominic Raab as your choice for future leader. Are you not a little bit worried now that you might, you might win Brexit, but you might sacrifice the, the future support of the Conservative Party on the altar of Brexit? when younger people turn away from the party looking at a party now consumed by, by Europe, the likes of Jacob Riggs-Mogg, Bill Cash, talking about sort of warlike terms about Europe now, that younger people will just turn away and say, this is no longer relevant for me, I, I, I don't want to support a party like this, and that actually compassionate conservatism, the modernising effect is, is dead now. Mm. I do get worried about that, actually, because our party has been consumed by Brexit, and I wouldn't put the blame just with Jacob and Bill. I would also put it on the other side. And I think that everyone's gone a little bit mad about Brexit. So I think language, is, language has not always been appropriate. And, and I, I wrote an article just a few days ago about this very issue. We, we really need to start talking to um, our society and our younger generation about the issues that they care about. I kind of still class myself as part of the younger generation. I think they'd say you are. Say that right. You don't talk about the issues that matter yeah. to, to young people. I agree. I don't think we are right now, and I think it's a real problem, and I worry about the future of our party and our country because of that. And I think it's absolutely urgent and necessary that we start talking about um, mental health provision, that we start talking about vocational training for people who don't want to go to university, that we start talking about home ownership. That those are some of the top issues that under 35s really care about because they're feeling a bit disenfranchised or considerably disenfranchised and locked out of the proceeds of growth. And we need to see how can we empower a next generation, a new generation, uh, uh, in values of self-responsibility, uh, enterprise, freedom, uh, and realising their dreams and, and, and aspiration. Those are my values, okay, and we no, have we, to talk we have about to, them we have to So is there anyone else in, the, in this group? I agree. Yes, the, the, the gentleman next door. Although, well, oh yes. Uh, hi. So I'll, I'll come back. 
Um, I, I find it a bit confusing, and it would be good if you could explain, but why you think leaving the EU and, uh, would provide um, excellent trading opportunities when the Japanese have said they won't give us the same trade terms as we've got with the EU because they know we're in a weak position, they'll get a better deal. When we run a huge trade surplus with the US and Trump has made it one of his main political pieces of political agenda to bring that deficit that the US has there down, which will obviously have very negative implications for the US trade surplus with the US. Well, I, I believe, again, if you look at the facts of our trade, we are trading at a deficit with the EU. So we are purchasing more than we sell. So from a British business point of view, if you're a British exporter, if you're making widgets, if you're making fine suits that Matt Ford wears... You're so fat blokes, when you point at me. <laughs> at the moment, you're not selling... churns out a lot of chubbers like me. We're very proud. <laughs> at the moment, you're not selling as much to the EU as you are to the rest of the world, because our biggest surplus is with, as you say, the US. Our trade exports are growing faster and by larger amounts with the US, with China and with India than they are with the EU. They're growing at a much slower rate, and that's because the economy in the Eurozone is growing at a much slower rate. And there are, there are countries in the EU which are in recession or in technical recession, Germany, Italy, they are not making for good customers for British goods. So I believe by coming out of the customs union, which is portrayed as our kind of saviour and our panacea for our economic well-being, which is totally false, freeing ourselves from those constraints, enabling us to set our own trade agenda, strike our own free trade agreements with faster growing economies in the Far East or the US, is going to only be, only be a good thing for jobs, prosperity and investment. Okay, we've got time for, for maybe one or two more questions. The gentleman at the front. Um, would anyone else like to ask a question? I'll come to them afterwards. I think that might be it. The last question of the night, and therefore the best question ever asked. Here we go, no pressure. Well, I have two questions I could ask, but i just ask one. Do you think um, enough recognition was given to the threat to the union at the time of the referendum? And in retrospect, don't you think it's a far more important issue than many of these temporary economic problems we may or may not face over the next 5, 10, 20 years? Hmm. Great question. Why do you hate the Scottish? <laughs> well, actually, that was one reason why I voted against the Prime Minister's deal, and I voted against it three times, because I believe it threatens the union. And the Democratic Unionist Party, our partners in government, uh, agreed with me. And they are unionists to their core, for them, the union is existential, and they felt that this deal would be fatal to the union. So this deal treats Northern Ireland differently, means that Northern Ireland is treated differently to the rest of Great Britain when it comes to the EU. Putting aside the customs issue at the moment, there's a far more fundamental issue. If you think about England wishing to leave and the threat to the union well, well, if I can finish my point. So I believe this deal threatens the union between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and sets, therefore, an unhealthy precedent for the union between Scotland and Great Britain. Because if Northern Ireland's suddenly going to get different treatment and be treated like a third country vis-a-vis -vis Great Britain, that only gives uh, fuel to the fires of 
um, independence and nationalism in Scotland, that they again can be treated differently uh, to the rest of the country. So I actually believe this deal is inimical to unionist <laughs> interests. And I don't believe, uh, and this, at, the elder, at the end of the day, this was a vote taken by the United Kingdom. It wasn't a decentralised vote, uh, nation by nation, town by town. Because if we're going to do that, then London should be remaining in the EU. Great idea. <laughs> Sarum should be leaving. Uh, and, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. oh, man. Great Shame. question. Great Shame. question. Really good question. Um, so it's been a play. I wonder, you know, you mentioned earlier there might be hurdles. I mean, is that the solution to a hard border? That instead of having a hard border, we just have a hurdle. <laughs> we could just sort of hop over if they really... We could just hop over if they really want to go to the Republic uh, or indeed the And other everyone way. becomes very good at athletics because they just... Of course. An investment in our future athletics. Um, so it's been such a good laugh having you here. You've been a great guest. Um, you know, we do get people from all sorts of different political backgrounds. I appreciate as a Brexiteer doing a live event in London isn't necessarily um, a, a neutral tough, event a in London. It's a tough crowd. It's a tough yes, crowd. but you've, you've, been, you've, you've been a great guest, so thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge thank you to Suella Bravo. Very good. Well, there you go. So, hello, Braverman from 2019. I'll be back next week with another political party replay special. Uh, leave a five-star written review, share it, tell your friends about it, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.